Hello again, church. If you have a Bible, if you'd please turn to the book of Acts. We will look at the ascension today. You know, every, every um, time we take the Lord's Supper, we say this phrase. We say, He ascended into heaven and is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And we're going to say those words in just a few minutes as we partake of the Lord's Supper. What's the significance of those words? Why do they matter? In case you're wondering, um, the ascension is 40 days after Easter in the church calendar. But why does the ascension matter? That's what we're going to look at today. I'm going to read from chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. This is God's word. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you going at this time to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them, hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the everlasting God. Our hope, our shield, our defense. And Lord, we believe that one day the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. And we will praise you and we will worship you and gather and you will gather in all of your church, all of your people with great joy. But Lord, we know that in order for you to one day descend again, you needed to first ascend to your throne. And so Lord, help us to see the reality that Jesus is on the throne even now as I speak these words. Jesus is at the right hand, at your right hand, Heavenly Father, ruling, reigning, sustaining, interceding for his church and giving out the Holy Spirit, giving his spirit to all those who, who would put their faith in Christ. We pray, Lord God, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, um, we say the Lord's Supper every, um, every, every time we take communion. We say this phrase in the Lord's Supper. You can uh, skip ahead a few slides here. And uh, the question for us today is what does the ascension matter for us other than 
just affirming that it happened, other than just saying the ascension happened, why does it matter for us today living here in the year 2016? And uh, three points for us today. Like a good pastor, I have three points that all end in Asian. Okay, we have humiliation, exaltation, exaltation and transformation. And uh, why do pastors always do three points? I don't know. Is it because the Trinity is three persons? I don't know. You can discuss that one in your growth groups. Food for thought. <laughs> but we just seem to always do three points. And, uh, but it works well for this passage. Humiliation, exaltation, transformation. We're going to look at the humiliation of Christ, the exaltation of Christ, and then the transformation of the disciples and all those who put their faith in Jesus. First of all, think about this. You know, we have so many um, traditions, so many Christmas traditions. Um, you know, we, uh, we, we put up lights, we give presents, we sing songs. But um, I don't know many Ascension songs. I don't know if you guys do. Um, I don't know many uh, um, traditions with the Ascension. And it's for good reason that we make much of Christmas. It's for good reason that we make much of Easter. But the church should not forget about the Ascension. If you think about it, the ascension is really the opposite side of the coin from the incarnation. The incarnation is how Jesus came. The ascension is how Jesus left. And according to our text, it's how Jesus is going to return. It says he's going to return the same way you saw him go. Now, first of all, let's, let's talk about what does it mean that Christ was humiliated or his humiliation? When we use that word, we don't mean the way you and I would use it. Oh, that was a humiliating experience or something like that. When, we use the, when theologians use the word humiliation, they're talking about what Jesus gave up when he was born in a manger. I mean, it's, we hear it so often that we forget. But Jesus, the eternal word of God, was, was dwelling with his Father in perfect glory. He was on the throne. And he gave it up to take on our flesh and to become like us. Paul says it the best. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2. Paul writes this. It should be on the screens as well. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You know, another way to to translate that is he did not consider equality with God something to be held onto. In other words, Jesus, for you and for me, willingly laid aside his power and his glory. It's not that he ever lost them. It's almost like a a soccer player, right? Whoever's the best soccer player in the world right now, I guess it's Messi or some of you would agree with that. But imagine if he were to go, okay, there's some amens there. Let's get some amens later, too. Um, imagine if, if, if he were to go and play with, um, a, you know, a little, uh, you know, a junior, a junior soccer league with some young kids. And he were to say, you know what? Because I am playing uh, with six-year-olds, I'm not just going to do whatever I want. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play at their level. I'm going to uh, get them involved in the game. It's perhaps a poor metaphor, but it maybe touches a little bit on what Jesus did for us. It's not that he lost his glory. It's not that he lost its power. It's rather that he set it aside so that he could take on our flesh, so that he could identify with us, and ultimately to die on a cross. 
the most shameful death that a person could possibly die. When we talk about Christ's humiliation, that's what we're talking about. But Easter and the empty tomb changes all that. It changes the cross. The cross goes from being a shameful death to a triumphant victory. Christ has now won salvation and defeated our enemies. Again, Paul helps us with this from Colossians 2. It's also on your screens. Colossians 2 says this, He has taken away our sin, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What the Romans used to do, and the Romans were the main power in the region at the time, as they continued to be for many years, when the Romans would would defeat an enemy, oftentimes they would take the leaders of that enemy, perhaps before they killed them or imprisoned them, and they would parade them through the streets. And the Roman general would be riding through the streets on his chariot, and behind him would be the leaders of of the captured and defeated foe. And the message was, there's new leadership in town, right? We're the bosses now. And Paul borrows this to say, this is really an amazing metaphor. He says, Jesus is leading our enemies in triumphal procession. In other words, somehow, I don't know if the angels see it. I don't know how because we don't always see it with, with, through the eyes of faith. But our enemies have been defeated. They are captured. They have been defeated and Jesus is now triumphing over them, making a spectacle of them. When we, when we talk about Christ going from humiliation to exaltation, that's what we talk about. Robert Peterson, who is uh, one of my professors in seminary, says this, At the ascension, Christ's earthly ministry, his humiliation, comes to an end, and the heavenly ministry, his exaltation, begins. What is the ascension? It's the coronation of Christ as the king of the cosmos as the king of the universe. That's what we're talking about when we talk about Christ's ascension. Is there anyone here who, who loves um, the British royal family? Um, I, guess, I guess, you know, Ang- Anglophiles, um, you know, those of you who um, maybe are very interested in, uh, I can believe it's Princess Kate, I think I got that right, um, and, and William, and I, I, know, I understand they've had some kids recently and they are on a lot of magazines and so forth. Well, I did a little research on Wikipedia, so you can trust it. And um, researched the royal family. And the current head of the British Commonwealth, which is composed of the UK, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, is Queen Elizabeth II. She's currently 89 years old. She's going to turn 90 on April 21st. And I wouldn't imagine that anyone here would know the date of her coronation. But Queen Elizabeth, her coronation day was June 2nd, 1953. Think about that. She's been reigning for over 60 years. She's now the longest reigning British monarch in history. And yet we know the British royal family, the queen, prince, princesses, etc., have very little actual power in British society in terms of making decisions, government decisions. They're simply figureheads. Um, it's, it's a good gig if you can get it, you know, to um, go around. I feel like every time I see the royal family, just, they're just posing with someone famous. You know, it's like, here's me and this famous person. Here's me and this famous person. Um, Not a bad gig. But let's be honest, it's a ceremonial gig. It's um, not to, to take away its significance as ambassadors of goodwill and that sort of thing, but the power's not there. 
And, and for us in America, the concept of a king and a queen seems foreign to us because we have democracy. And uh, I will say that democracy, in my opinion, is the best form of government that humans have yet to have, have come up with so far in a sinful world. But we need to know this. Democracy is not the best system of government in a world without sin. Say it again. Democracy is not the best system of government in a world without sin. You know what the best system of government is in a world without sin? It's an absolute monarch. It's a king who rules with absolute power and justice and fairness. And when Jesus returns for his second advent, the king will return. And we will no longer be living in the political system or any political system that we currently have. There will be one question. Are you a loyal subject of the king or not? Because the Bible says this amazing principle that heaven and earth are going to become one. New heavens, new earth. Jesus is going to physically be there as the king. And I will tell you this. There won't be any more primaries. There won't be. You can let out the amen there. I get it. Um, Amen, right? We're not even at the election yet. There won't be any more debates on Fox News or CNN. There won't be any question of delegates or the Electoral College. In glory, there will be no elections because Jesus will be king. Amen? And we will be delighted and filled with love at his perfect rule of the world, of the new heavens and the new earth. You know, in the new heavens and the new earth, the defense budget will be zero because we won't have any enemies. So no one's going to be arguing over that. And we won't be arguing over the laws of the land because the laws of the land will be perfect and they will be designed to treat everyone perfectly and with perfect love. In heaven, politics will be no more. Now, politics now is necessary because we live in a sinful world. But we need to realize this. Politics are an accommodation to living in a sinful world. And what we are waiting on and what our hope is is the return of the king. That's what we're waiting on. We're waiting on the return of the king. The text says he will return the same way you saw him go. He is coming back again. Right now, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, sitting down on a throne. In other words, it's a posture which reflects calm. He's in control. He doesn't even need to get up from the throne to rule everything in a perfect and glorious way. You know, if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of us would say this. You know, I'd really love to see Jesus. I wish I could see Jesus. And if you carry that logic out a little further, you might say, I wish Jesus had never ascended. What if, what if we lived in a different universe where Jesus was resurrected, but he, but he didn't ascend? He stayed on earth. And we might think to ourselves, you know, it would be great if, if I could see Jesus, if I could give Jesus a hug, if I could look Jesus in the eyes. And we have to ask ourselves, is it really better that Jesus went up to heaven? And there's no better person to ask that question to than Jesus himself. And fortunately, Jesus answers that question for us. He answers it directly. In John 16, 7, Jesus says this, and we're on to transformation now. 
In John 16, 7, Jesus says these, these words, and these should startle us a little bit. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him. Jesus himself says that until his second coming, it is good that he goes away. There's this amazing scene in the book of John. Mary Magdalene runs to the tomb. Um, she goes to the tomb and the, tomb, the, the rock has been rolled away, but Jesus' body isn't there yet. And Mary doesn't yet fully appreciate what has happened. She doesn't realize that Jesus has been resurrected. The text says she sees a man. She thinks it's the gardener. Then she realizes it's Jesus. After he says her, he says, Mary. She knows that voice. She said, Jesus. Imagine the scene. She runs to Jesus and she gives him a huge hug. She's probably sobbing. And the words that come out of Jesus' mouth, they can seem cold, if not a little confusing. This is what Jesus says to Mary. He says, don't cling to me. I am ascending to my Father. Now, what's, why is Jesus saying that? Why is Jesus making that point? You know what he's, sa- he's saying to Mary? He's saying, Mary, if I stay on this earth, you can give me a hug right now. But if I go up to heaven and I send my Holy Spirit, I can fill this entire earth with the power of my spirit and I can claim all of my people for myself and each one of us, in a way, can cling to Jesus right now at this moment. If you're a Christian, you can cling to Jesus because you're united to Christ by faith and the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. Jesus himself said, it's remarkable. He said, it's better if I go away. I want us to think about the disciples for a minute. Think about the three stages of the disciples' lives in terms of their time with Jesus. Before Jesus died, what were the, what were the disciples like? Um, and we have this up here, the, uh, the disciples' transformation. Before Jesus died on the cross, the disciples were a bunch of knuckleheads. I mean, if we're really honest, they were a bunch of knuckleheads. It's like the three stooges. I bet Jesus wanted to bonk them on the head multiple times, but he never, you know, he always had perfect patience and, um, and love for them. But let's be honest, and, and honestly, I'm a knucklehead too. We all are. They were filled with fear. They were filled with jealousy. They were filled with pride. They were often confused about various things. In Luke 9.46, they're arguing with Jesus about who's going to sit on his right and left side. You know, that's, that, that's the state where they're in. They're saying, well, who's going who's to have more power, basically, have more glory? In, in Matthew um, 16, 23, and I think this just summarizes the human condition so much. Jesus says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And of course, it's Peter. He, you know, he talks before he thinks. And, and, and oftentimes, that's a good thing because he's got courage. But Peter immediately says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Amen. Jesus says, Peter, upon this confession, I will build my church. But then what happens just a few verses later? Jesus is saying to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Just a few verses later, Jesus is saying that to Peter because Peter didn't understand that Jesus had to die and Jesus had to rise again. During Jesus' life, and I don't mean to knock the disciples because honestly, if I was, if I was one of those disciples, you know, I would have done worse than all of them. But they were knuckleheads. They were filled with fear, jealousy, pride, and they were confused. What happens after the resurrection? Well, they're amazed. They're trusting, they're believing, but they're still fearful. And they're still confused about some things. And we see this in verse 6. Look at verse 6 of, of the text. Jesus, they, they ask Jesus this question. They say, Lord, 
are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? So their knowledge has advanced. Now they know that Jesus had to die. They know that Jesus had to rise. They know that Jesus came to put away sin, to atone for sin, but now they've narrowed it to, uh, to the scope of just Israel, really. They're saying, Lord, when are you going to do your work among our people? And this is what, and Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't say you're wrong. And I think if you read the New Testament, God seems to have some purpose for the Jewish people that he's going to gather them in at some point. But what Jesus says is it's not for you to know the time and the place of that. But then what does he do? He points them back to the Great Commission. He says, don't worry about that. You let God worry about that stuff. You worry about, you need to focus on what I've commanded you to do, to go to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, and to take this good news to everyone. And you will have my Holy Spirit. That's after the resurrection. Now, what happens after Pentecost? You see, the ascension matters because if you don't have an ascension, you don't have Pentecost. And after the ascension, this is where we really see a real remarkable change in the disciples. It's not that they're perfect. It's not that they don't sin. Um, But now they are spirit-filled. They're courageous leaders. They, They speak with authority, and they're even willing to die for their Savior which, according to church tradition, every single one of them did. What's happened? What's changed? It's Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has been poured out from Jesus. It's, the Holy Spirit is also called the Spirit of Christ. Jesus, from his throne, has poured out his Spirit upon his church. And that's exactly what he said he would do. Tim Keller writes this about the ascension. He says the ascension is the detonator for everything else Jesus did. It isn't the removal of Christ, and that's what, that, that's, what we, that's what Mary thought, and that's what we first think. Oh, I wish Jesus was here. It's not the removal of Christ, but it's the increased and heightened presence of Christ because now we have the Holy Spirit. Here's the question the angel would ask us today. People of GRC, why do you stand here looking into heaven? In other words, Jesus is on his throne. Jesus has given us his spirit Do we believe it? Do we believe that Jesus has provided all that his church needs to accomplish his mission until he comes again? Do we really believe that Jesus' bodily absence is a good thing? I think in order to believe that, you have to recognize that that to be a Christian means to have the Holy Spirit. Um, You know, sometimes maybe we we reduce the faith down to a bunch of, uh, just a bunch of doctrines. And, and being able to affirm various things. But the scriptures are clear. If you, if you belong to Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. Jesus lives inside of you. Paul says this in Galatians 5.25. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. In other words, let us walk with Christ, knowing that His Spirit is at work within us. I want to add this. Is it a bad thing to desire to see Jesus physically? No, it's not. I'm looking forward to the day when I'm going to physically see Jesus. And one day we will physically see Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. Paul says, now we see in a mirror dimly, then we shall see face to face. But Jesus has not left his church to tend for itself, to care for itself. He has given his Holy Spirit. He has told us, trust me, be filled with my spirit, walk in faith and accomplish my mission and I'm coming back. And you know, Sometimes we look around 
society, right? And we just see so much stuff that discourages us. And we wonder, Jesus, are you accomplishing this mission? Are you, are you really gathering all your people in? Because I look around me and I see so much brokenness and I see so much unbelief and I see Western society giving up on, on God and religion to a large degree. And here we need to open our eyes and we need to realize what God is doing all over the world. I want to read you a long quote from a pastor named Rick Warren. <clears throat> Rick Warren is the pastor of Saddleback Church in California, which started Celebrate Recovery, which we have at our church. And um, amazing pastor, and he, and he writes this. This is a long quote, so hang with me. He says, The last 50 years has seen the greatest re- redistribution of a religion ever in the history of the world. There is nothing even to compare it to. For instance, at the beginning of the 20th century, in 1900, 71% of all, quote, Christians lived in Europe, 71%. By 2000, that percentage had declined to 28%, and only 28% claimed to be Christians, and I'm sure it's far smaller than that who actually go to church. I was in Italy in November, and I can tell you for the nation of Italy and a lot of Western democracies, it is way lower than that. On the other hand, Christianity was exploding in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. To give you an example, in 1900, there were 10 million Christians in all of Africa, 10% of the population. Today, there are around 360 million Christians in Africa. By the way, these numbers are dated too. You can probably add in, you know, 10, 20, 30 million. I wouldn't be surprised because um, I think this interview was maybe six or seven years back. Over half the population. That is a complete turnaround on a continent that's never ever been seen or done in history. And by the way, we didn't even talk about China when we looked at these numbers. God is accomplishing his mission. His church is going forward. It doesn't always look like that because God's church is not about political military power. It's not about, in fact, being a Christian is about giving power away so often. It's about strength through weakness. But God is accomplishing his mission. Jesus is accomplishing his mission And the question for us today is, am I going to be on board with that mission? Am I going to walk in faith and say, Lord, help me to be used of you to accomplish your mission? One thing that we should pray is we should pray that God would bring revival to our country, first of all, to our city, to our families, to our country. We should pray that and God can do that. Who knows? Maybe one day Western democracies will be on fire for Jesus once again. I don't know. And we should pray for that. But we should also pray that God would help us to see the work that he's already doing in people around us. Okay? God is saving people. God is at work. Pray for the eyes of faith to see that coworker or that neighbor or that family member or that organization or whatever it is where God is already at work, where God is already planting seeds. And so often, just like Paul says, One guy planted, one guy harvested, one guy did this, but God gets all the glory. God's at work. God's at work. He's given us his spirit. He's told us to pray. He's told us to long for revival. And he's told us that he is the king who is seated on his throne, who is saving his people, who is growing his church, and who will come one day come back again. Let's pray. Father, You are the ascended, Jesus, you are the ascended king.
at the right hand of the Father. Lord, help us to see its significance for us today. Help us to walk in step with the Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.